District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining this episode of District of Conservation. We are pleased to be joined by Bill M. Bergamo of the Federal Forest Resource Coalition. They are a unique national coalition of small and large companies and regional trade associations whose members harvest and manufacture wood products, paper, and renewable energy from federal timber resources. We're going to talk about wildfires playing out west, the importance of forest management, maybe misconceptions about the forest industry, and what policy prescriptions are needed today to ensure that forests are managed and people's livelihoods are not destroyed. So, Bill, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. Why don't you explain how you got involved in the forestry industry? What led you to work with this coalition? What the coalition does even more broadly than the explanation I provided? Sure. Yeah. So I, I like to say a series of bad life choices, but uh, now I, I've been working in in forest policy since 1991. Um, I was in a, on an academic track, but uh, kind of soured on that and got a chance to go to work for, for what was going to be a summer with the National Association of State Foresters, and that's what launched me into what's now 30 years of of working sort of next to, but never for the Forest Service. And uh, I worked for the forest products industry uh, for several years in the early 2000s, worked on both the House and Senate Agriculture Committees uh, as their forestry staffers. And then uh, in 2011, so 10 years ago, this coming next month, actually will be be 10 years, the Federal Forest Resource Coalition launched and basically uh, you know, the trade associations in Washington that have worked for the timber industry were paying less and less attention to the public lands issues. And my members uh, felt they needed to change that, uh, needed to increase the focus on, on the health of the national forests and uh, have a voice for purchasers who depend on, on Forest Service timber. And so we we started as an ad hoc coalition in 2009, but formally launched in 2011. And we now have members, and I think we're in 36 states. And uh, it's a, um, uh, uh, you know, we're, we, we've covered most of the, the industry that, that still cares about the national forests, which make up 191 million acres of, of timberland, or about a quarter of all uh, timberland in the country. Yes, and the first I heard about the coalition was from Jim Neiman when I stayed at his, uh, I think it's his golf lodge in the Black Hills of Wyoming. He told me about the organization, told me to research it. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about it. So I've heard it loosely and I want my listeners to learn more about it because it's one of many groups, I think, tackling the importance of representing those who work in the industry. And how important is the timber industry today? Obviously, there have been a lot of different changes. It's a lot less, perhaps, not influential, but it's perhaps less um, of a presence than it used to be because of different environmental laws, different things that have happened, policies that have been instituted that have discouraged the timber industry. So what exactly, where exactly is the timber industry right now? Well, the industry as a whole is very strong. Uh, you know, the wood products demand is remains very, very high. Uh, and, you know, but it's, it's been a very challenging economic environment. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of consolidation in the industry. We've seen a lot of reduced demand for the paper side of things. 
Um, but the, the wood products industry remains strong. There's a lot of demand uh, that's now being met by a smaller number of companies. Uh, you know, quite a few didn't survive the, the Great Recession. Uh, and, you know, my, my members are the segment of the industry whose mills are located in places where the national forests make up a, a good portion of the, the wood basin, as it's called. And so a member like Jim Nyman from Wyoming, he has mills in Wyoming, South Dakota, and Colorado. He's almost entirely dependent upon national forest timber to keep his operations running, something in the neighborhood of 80% of his fibers coming from, from the Black Hills National Forest primarily, and then forests in, in Colorado as well. And it's, you know, we, we, we're now at the, the point where with the greatly diminished Forest Service timber sale program, you know, we're, we're the asset that the Forest Service needs to get management done. Uh, throughout the 80s and, and a good chunk of the 90s, the, the Forest Service sold more than 10 billion board feet of timber every year. And then that bottomed out in 2001 at 1.75 billion board feet, uh, primarily because of a series of, of decisions to set aside lots of land uh, for cer certain species. Uh, in the case of, of the spotted owl and the grizzly bear, and in other cases, just to set aside land. So fully half of the national forest system is in restricted land use, either wilderness, which is designated by Congress, or roadless. And, you know, that combined with consolidation in our industry has made it a lot harder for the Forest Service to do management on these forests. And we're paying the price for that now. When you see these forests that are burning, they haven't been managed uh, actively or even very much at all in the last uh, 20 to 25 years. And that's plenty of time to make them become much more fire prone. And then, you know, you, you double that with the impact of, of climate change. And it's, it's a very serious situation when you see what's happening in, in California again this year. Uh, it's putting communities at risk and it's, it's certainly not doing anything good for the climate. It seems like politicians now are just kicking this issue down the road, kicking the can on forest management, despite seeing just the horrific effects of a lack of forest management. I'm from California originally, so I remember fire season, mostly chaparral because I was in Southern California, and then also the regular, um, more kind of uh, wooded uh, forests that were very descriptive of Northern California. And it just seems like there's a refusal by California's government to do anything because they're hamstringed and actually not hamstring more so <laughs> tied very closely to a lot of these environmental preservationist organizations that say no management or they find the spotted owl or some other scapegoat to say, well, because this animal resides there, you can't develop there or you can't manage there, excuse me. And it just seems like they're lacking this kind of basic knowledge to tackle this because they fear it'll destroy everything, although prescribed burns could be a good remedy as well. Same with just thinning the forests. It's known to work in many states, and the fact that California, for instance, refuses to do that is pretty troubling. And they're going to have very dangerous fires, more volatile fires going forward if they continue to refuse to manage it. So when we see Congress deliberating this issue, we have two foresters. I know there's one in Congress, obviously, Bruce Westerman, and then there's one in the Senate. I think it's Jim Reich. And you would think colleagues in the Senate will listen to foresters, trained foresters like them. 
But why is it that this this issue hasn't really had any action taken on it? Well, I mean, I think there's I think there's a couple of things there. That, you know, they in California, you've got 19 million acres of national forest, and about 9.1 million are either in wilderness or roadless areas. Again, that's that big decision. That's almost half the the landscape, half the national forest landscape, and and that basically means very little can be done to control fuels on those acres. And then you've got, again, in the 90s, we decided that with, with several species, the early science, and, and it, you know there was some field work behind this, said, well, these, anim, these, these creatures, three or four flavors of spotted owls and grizzly bears, need closed canopy dense forests to survive. And that was the belief uh, but, you know, how has that worked out? We've seen, uh, I think it was over 360,000 acres of spotted owl habitat in Oregon that was destroyed by high severity fire last year. Uh, these fires in Northern California, particularly the Dixie Fire right now, uh, is again burning in areas where we decided that for the California spotted owl, uh, it needed dense closed canopy forests. Well, it turns out those forests that we said those creatures needed uh, are the most fire prone. And, uh, you know, it's it, the, the difficulty for Congress is we've been able to pass quite a number of reforms, but none of them apply when you have critical habitat designations and you can't use them in wilderness or roadless. So we can't treat enough of the acres uh, with the expedited authorities we've been able to pass. And you know we're we're really uh, we've we've proven that if you give the Forest Service these tools to expedite management, that they won't abuse them. They won't go out and abuse their discretion. There's this myth that the Forest Service uh, is full of people who just like selling timber because they like selling timber. Uh, that's just not the case. So the agency won't abuse their discretion, um, but. You know, the fact is they cannot put those new authorities on these acres that have these restrictions on them. So we just simply can't touch enough of the landscape uh, with the kind of treatments they need. And, and I'm, I'm rambling on a bit here, but I did want to circle back to the prescribed fire thing that you brought up. A great amount of national forest acreage would benefit from prescribed fire, but it is in no condition to be prescribed burned. Uh, this area, again, the Dixie Fire, I was there about five years ago, and it is unbelievably dense and overstocked. Uh, prescribed fire is the uh, second or third step after you thin the forest. You cannot do it uh, initially. It's, you know, prescribed fire in those cases is just simply arson. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of management that needs to take place before we can start uh, running around with drip torches. Sure. Yeah. No, I appreciate the clarification. I mean, generally speaking, it's where it's not too wooded. It's it's a prescription. E-A-J-A. -A, that's how I like to say it. So the E-A-J-A, -A, do you think that's also an obstacle to forest management being actualized and, and realized? Because I know for species management, that's something that environmentalists use to kind of chokehold uh, the states and different stakeholders from, let's say, uh, allowing for delisting efforts, but is it also similarly applied in the instance of forest management and timber? Absolutely. You know, it's it. EJ is is one of those things that's out there that 
I don't see a lot of appetite to address it in Congress, but it is handed an unbelievable amount of power to, quite frankly, fairly marginal environmental groups. Uh, you know, some of the worst offenders out there are, are small, and I don't want, I don't want to give them uh, the the publicity of mentioning their names. But you know, they're not they're not really large organizations, and they rely on getting uh, uh, their their legal fees paid under Equal Access to Justice Act. And, uh, you know, one of the things Bruce Westerman recommended in a, a version of the um, uh, Resilient Federal Forest Act was to require groups that are filing suit against the federal government to put up a bond uh, so that if they lose, they would forfeit the bond uh, and have to have it pay some of the government's legal fees. And, you know, the, the, the question for the Forest Service is, is how often, how, ma how many layers of legal review does a forest need before they can go manage? Uh, forest plans go through a, a public process, they go through a NEPA process that can be litigated. Individual pro uh, forest management projects go through a public process, they go through a NEPA process and they can be litigated. Uh, and then they can, all of that can then be appealed up to the circuit courts. So the question is, how much judicial review do we need before we can say, all right, we've got a forest management plan in place. Uh, now let's go do it. Uh, you know, right now, forest plans are, are exercises in creating binding constraints that the environmentalists use to get things into court and totally optional goals. And, and we'd like to see those goals become much more binding on the agency and have them treat more acres. Yes, and they actually profit from exploiting this law and they keep funding in perpetuity and largely on emotional appeals and not sound science practices. That's what I've noticed in my examination into the ESA and how they use this law uh, to exert power more so. Well, and, so mm -hmm. and, and, one, and one important point, the environmentalists frequently ultimately lose these cases. They, they, they lose, but they win injunctions on the project. Mm -hmm. uh, the project gets enjoined while the Forest Service goes back and engages in more analysis. <coughs> Excuse me. And then ultimately the project goes forward as it was proposed. But the, the, the point is, and, and, and this has happened numerous times in California, while the legal process is unfolding and the injunctions are in place, the project area burns. So the environmental groups don't need to win the case, quote unquote. Uh, they just need to get an injunction long enough for the project to become irrelevant through either decay of the wood or an actual fire. And that's the frustration is ultimately these projects usually wind up being checked out as okay by the courts, but it's just such a long process uh, that we frequently lose the acres before we can get the work done. And it seems like any, I would say, impactful reforms are probably going to be tossed out the window. I don't think this new administration is going to tackle NEPA reforms, which were put into place the last administration. It was shown to have helped streamline different processes and I worry that it's going to be complicated also in this issue as well. Um, and we're just not going to see much tackling unless they're forced to, or maybe they direct the Forest Service to help do this. Or I don't know if private forestry interests or like a private firefighter service can come in and help 
manage where the government fails or state governments fail. I, I was reading into something from Perk and they talked about a private firefighting force, which was really cool. So maybe private innovations can kind of help them force them to perhaps maybe tackle the issue more seriously. But it does seem like regulatory roadblock is going to inhibit forest management from being done. Is that what the coalition worries about, that they're not going to take measures into account to help streamline the process, to allow for management practices to be put into place? Well, this is a kind of a good news, bad news kind of thing. Um, the the broad national NEPA regulations that were adopted by the previous administration, the, those are the Council on Environmental Quality uh, sort of the national NEPA regs, uh, those they're pretty clearly trying to backpedal on. And those were, you know, those had things like requiring timelines and page limits and, you know, quite frankly, put into regulation just NEPA best practices. Uh, and unfortunately, they're backpedaling there. The Forest Service had a much smaller uh, kind of set of targeted NEPA regulations, a couple of new categorical exclusions and something called a determination of NEPA adequacy. And those are going forward and they, they are being litigated. And the, the good news is the administration has said they're going to defend them in court. Uh, I guess I gave you bad news, good news. Now I'll go back to bad news. The bad news is, is that then subsequently the Forest Service sent a note to the field and said, hey, we really want you to go slow in using these new regs. And that just doesn't compute. You know, when you look at the, the magnitude of the fire season we're seeing, they ought to be telling the, the, the agency at every level, use whatever streamlined authority is appropriate uh, on as many acres as you can. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard that they, even though they may outwardly oppose something, they are defending things in court for other issues. So I have seen that. So that's interesting. I appreciate the update. What is stewardship contracting? You guys listed on your website. I'm curious for you to explain that. So stewardship contracting has been around uh, uh, for about 15 years, I think. Maybe it's coming up on 20. Um, it's, it's actually quite interesting. It's an important tool to get more work done on federal lands. And basically what it allows the Forest Service to do is trade some of the value of standing timber in exchange for forest management work, like prescribed burning, uh, noxious weed control, improvement of fish passage, and that sort of thing. So in other words, you know, if there's not a lot of value in the standing timber, instead of having the, the purchaser pay cash for it, uh, they would, they basically exchange that value of that standing timber uh, to do all of those beneficial things. And it's, you know, it's an important part of the program. It's an important part of getting work done on the national forest. But it's also important to note that it, the, the, the quote unquote normal timber sale program can, can do a lot of the same things. Uh, there's a, a program called the Newtson Vandenberg Fund where the, when my members purchase Forest Service timber, they make deposits into that fund. And those funds can be used for reforestation wildlife habitat improvement, prescribed burning, and all those things. So the, the agency has quite a number of tools. Stewardship contracting's uh, garnered a lot of public support because it tends to be used places where the community has come together and said to the Forest Service, hey, you need to up your game and get more management on the landscape. And I noticed on your website that a lot of forest reform is needed for economic growth and they support schools. Could you explain that system, how 
the proceeds from the industry help directly invest locally in different rural areas? Yeah, sure. So, so 25% of gross receipts from all, uh, a host of activities, including oil and gas and timber, uh, goes to support local schools and roads. And uh, there, there's been kind of a safety net in place as the timber sale program has shrunk. But you do have an increasing number of, of counties that are going back to the 25% payment. So 25% of the gross uh, goes directly to the counties where the forests are. And then I think, you know, the important thing to keep in mind here is it isn't just that, that 25% of the gross, right? You're talking about some of the uh, poorest counties in the U.S. outside of the Mississippi Delta tend to be near the national forests. And so these are, are, are good year-round jobs in these communities. Uh, you know, I am as big an advocate for the recreation and outdoor economy. I travel to, to hunt and fish uh, 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 like a lot of people do. But, you know, if we're going to have stable year-round employment in, in these towns around the rural West, uh, and quite frankly, in some other parts of the country that aren't always that nice to visit, like Alabama in the summertime, um, you know, these, the, the, the support to these communities is in keeping year-round family wage jobs in place. And, and that far outweighs the, those, the 25% of the, the gross revenues. And you, you saw it, you, you were in Hewlett, Wyoming? Yes, I was last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hewlett is is a, a a great example of that. I mean, it's a what about 500 residents is a very very small town, and about 100 work in the mill. Uh, you know, put simply, if that mill goes away, Hewlett goes away. You know, it might hang on for a couple of years as a place where people go over from Sturgis, but if that mill folds, uh, you know, that town is is on the block. And that, that is not something that, that I want to see uh, happen in these towns. These people have put a lot into building them up and, and trying to be there to manage the, the forest, trying to help the forest service. Uh, and it would just be absolutely criminal to see more of them have to close down. Yeah, that would largely stem from a philosophy where you believe that everything just has to be natural preservation of course, and then you don't recognize that you can also balance stewardship with commerce. And I think this example has largely helped us succeed in this country where you can have both without sacrificing one or the other. I think what I would what I hope happens is that we kind of uh, maybe we acknowledge that we've kind of done enough on the preservation front. You know, that that to me seems to be the main thing that's missing from these conversations. I saw a, a project got, got enjoined last week, 2,800 acres of management on the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forest in Idaho. And that's a, about a two and a half million acre forest. And it is 62% roadless and wilderness. In other words, no management is going to take place on that 62%. Two out of every three acres on that forest is not going to be managed. And this project didn't enter a roadless area. It uh, obviously doesn't didn't enter a wilderness area, and yet the judge enjoined it because the environmentalists have a theory about bull trout, and you know they're they're it's it's in real danger of burning, and this is where you know this is where we've kind of lost the thread. 
it's it's this belief that, or it's it's the environmentalist going to court and being, well, this twenty eight hundred acres is super important. Well, completely ignoring the the two thirds of the forest that's completely off limits to management. That's what we need to recognize is that from a, a, a no use point of view or, or from a, a, a hands-off point of view, the Forest Service has given it the office. Uh, it's, there's not a need for, for more set-asides uh, to, to account for these species, even if the, even if the strategy did work. Once use there, yeah, how, how, how it's important for people to see forestry in action. Yeah, I mean, I think what we see with these fires, you know, it was about two weeks ago now, the bootleg fire in Oregon, uh, the, the Forest Service reported from within the fire perimeter that the areas that they had thinned, the fire laid down, it didn't run up into the canopies, it didn't kill all the trees, and it provided islands that that were safe havens for wildlife. And, you know, Basically, what the Forest Service tells us is everywhere they're able to get treatments on the landscape, they see a change in fire behavior. So there's kind of this narrative on the on the environmental community that this is all about climate change and all we can do is try to protect communities. And that to me is just, that's just bad stewardship. That's just giving up. Uh, I call that the trophy home protection approach to forest management. And you know, it's it, to me that's that's not what the Forest Service should be doing. These watersheds need to be healthy. We need to provide habitat for wildlife. We're not providing it by allowing catastrophic fires to rip through them. And people, you know, people see it all the time. The Forest Service, every single time they've seen fire hit one of their treatments, it changes fire behavior. So it's pretty clear what we need to do. Uh, it's it's a matter of of willpower, funding. And then ultimately getting some of these these assumptions in in species recovery plans uh, fixed, so we can get more management on more acres. Are there any other policies and let's say innovative approaches the forest industry is taking to perhaps better the situations? I know something that's often talked about is sequestering and carbon capture. Is that something you guys are exploring as well? Well, so that's that's the beauty of uh, of wood as an industrial material, right? It's the only industrial material out there made out of water, sunlight, and air, and and trees just capture carbon from the atmosphere naturally just by living. And when you cut a tree, that carbon doesn't go into the atmosphere; it goes into the solid wood product and stays in it for decades, if not more than a century. So you know that's. Uh, recognizing that aspect of forest management is going to be really important. You know, at some point, it's pretty clear there's going to be some national level climate policies beyond what we have now. And if those recognize that that sustainable forest management has carbon benefits, they'll be beneficial. If they're premised on the idea that we can preserve our way to carbon heaven, um, that clearly isn't going to work. 110 million metric tons of, of uh, carbon equivalent emissions from the 2020 fire season in California alone last year. Um, so yes, it would be very nice to be recognized. And certainly if it's if it's done wrong, it could be harmful. And what are good ways for people to learn about the forestry basics, let's say from the policy standpoint, how to learn about the different phases, management solutions? What would you recommend for people who are just learning about it, who are confused by all the different talking points about it, what, what's a good first step to learn about the basics? 
Well, you know, uh, go to our website and follow our Twitter feed. Obviously, uh, <laughs> I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't plug plug that. But I think looking at the research done by the Ecological Restoration Institute in Northern Arizona is a really good, uh, simple, easy to understand case studies of how our forests have changed because we've stopped managing them, managing them, and we've we've excluded fire. Uh, and how beneficial management can be in restoring the health of these lands, getting healthy fire back into the landscape rather than catastrophic fire. Uh, and you know, it's it's a it's a great study in what can be done and what needs to be done. Uh, so so NAU's research on that front is is excellent. And then also some of the work done by uh, Paul Hesberg at the Forest Service. He has a great TED talk on the age of megafires. And, uh, you know, it's, it pretty clearly states we've got to get more acres treated across the landscape. And he shows some pretty pretty simple and compelling graphics that show unmanaged versus managed forests and how they fare in fires. I'll be sure to plug that into the show notes. That's great. I'll even watch that myself. Do you recommend people learn about forestry on the ground to visit certain operations? I know they probably don't want to open it up to the public too much, but if people were curious just to see kind of just basic operations about how things go, I've seen it firsthand myself a little bit. Um, do you think the industry would open up to the public a little more or do they worry about media mischaracterizations sometimes? Oh, I don't, I don't know that we worry about media mischaracterization. I think that, I think it's a, it's a challenging uh, field to get the media to, to go places and spend enough time to actually learn things. Um, one example would be the Washtenaw National Forest in Arkansas. Uh, fantastic examples of timber projects paying all of the bills uh, for restoring red cockaded woodpecker habitat, restoring shortleaf pine little blue stem ecosystems, which are home to gopher tortoise. And if you're more into things you can aim at and shoot at, they're quail and turkey habitat. Um, the, the Washita is just a showplace of, of absolutely producing timber, creating better wildlife habitat, and supporting jobs. Uh, there, there are others, the Colville National Forest in Washington, where they're doing a very large stewardship project. They're about two-thirds done with it. Uh, you know, the trick, the trick with visiting our industry is figuring out the right time of year, and that in the West increasingly is not the summer, because uh, it's too, just too fire-prone these days. Uh, and then the, the, you know, forest management is a somewhat dangerous activity. So I'd encourage people to, to visit a couple of different national forests, but also reach out to your state forestry associations. They can be a good resource. That's some solid advice. Yeah. And I know that forest fire season is now not just concentrated to a few months. I was reading something that sometimes they can be prolonged to almost being year round incidences or year round phenomenon. So yeah, it's very concerning and you have to know exactly when to go to see it and, and befriend people and kind of maybe build up their trust in that. Is there anything else you want to add about the industry, about timber, forest management, anything you're looking for in Congress to possibly pass or any legislation or updates? I think that, there, you know, I don't think we can spend our way out of this problem, but the reality is some of the damage that the Forest Service has taken in 2020 and is likely taking again here in 2021 they don't have the resources to restore the road systems for access. 
uh, to protect streams uh, and to engage in reforestation. They just don't. Um, they're, they're really bad at advocating for themselves. Uh, there's about $6 billion in the infrastructure package. Now the infrastructure package is a, is a mixed bag, but it does make $6 billion in investments, about $3 billion of which are, are fairly useful. Uh, but the, the, the tactical issue that needs to be addressed is a very negative Supreme Court case called the Cottonwood decision. It's been abused in the courts and is delayed badly needed forest management projects. And we've been trying to get a solution to that for several years now. We got a partial solution in the 2018 Farm Bill. And then again, you know, I think the the big change we need to make is changing some of the assumptions in these species recovery plans, because those are what get in the way of, of extending treatment to more acres. Like ESA reforms to an extent yeah. or something else? It's, it's ESA reforms are, are, quite frankly, it doesn't even need to be a legislative reform. We need, we need to revisit these recovery plans. You know, the recovery plans on the grizzly bear and the and the spotted owl and the Canada lynx all make this assumption that just vast blocks of unmanaged forests are what these creatures need, and 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 we're just not seeing that work. You know, we're seeing those areas become the places that get the bug infestations first. They become the places that that uh, wind up being the source of these fires that turn into million, half million acre fires. It's bad assumptions in, in the recovery plans that, that prevent management. That is very true. There's a lot to unpack. But Bill, if you want to include anything else for my listeners, uh, where to connect with you, if they have any questions to learn about the coalition, to learn more about forest management, where would you send them to? Well, check out our fitter, <laughs> fitter, Twitter feed, at uh, Federal Forest uh, on Twitter. And then just if you search Federal Forest Resource Coalition on Facebook, those are probably the best two ways to keep up with us. And the website as well, yes. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope people take away from this a lot of information about forest management. Maybe they'll demand their lawmakers to care about it. They'll get really curious about it. And I appreciate your insight into it. Thanks for having me, Gabby. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, comb through some episodes and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds, all of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Stay tuned for the next episode. Really appreciate you listening to District of Conservation.